people write me and say, hey, Joe Bob Briggs, just what is Monster Vision? You don't need no special glasses or an insect's head. Just a healthy love for slime and disrespect for the dead. We'll talk about some movies by the old double wide. And when you get that creepy feeling creeping up inside, well, then you got Monster Vision. It's a heck of a fright. We're tearing the heart out of Saturday nights. These Monster Vision movies serve a primitive drive. Cause watching people die can make you feel so alive. So throw away your clicker now, the flicks have begun. Cause there's nothing you can do while fully dressed. It's as fun as watching ENT beneath the bugs after light. We're tearing the heart out of Saturday night. Tearing the heart out of Saturday This is a drive-in crowd or not. So I tell you what to find out. I'm going to swear in this crowd. I want you to all rise for the drive-in oath. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. We are drive-in mutants. We are not like other people. We are sick. We are disgusting. We believe in blood, in breasts, and in beasts. If life had a vomit meter, we'd be off the scale. As long as one drive in remains, on the planet Earth, we will party like jungle animals. We will boogie till we puke. The drive-in will never die. Amen. All right. Radio Drone. We're tearing the heart out of Saturday night here on Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me as always is Cecil shows up sometimes. How can I be with you always and sometimes? That's the dichotomy of you. Peter won't be joining us this week, but we have a very, very special guest, if you can't tell from the I played before the opening. I actually landed an interview with Joe Bob Briggs. Now, it's just me and Joe Bob talking because Cecil was supposed to be there, but somebody can't figure out time zones properly. Like, you're in stupid land with dumb time. I'm in central. Right. Well, I, 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 ah, whatever. Cecil showed up as we were finishing. He's like, I'm here. It's like, you're an hour late. I, you know, whatever. I wrote the wrong time down. Before we start talking about Joe Bob, though, you guys need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, 
D-R-O-M-E. And you will get 50% off of a single item. With Valentine's Day coming up, you'll get a free romance kit, which includes a toy for him, a toy for her, and a toy for both of you, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, at adamandeve.com. All right, that out of the way. How did you first encounter Joe Bob? I'll go into history and stuff in a little bit, but you grew up with Joe Bob Briggs the same as I did. How did you first encounter Joe Bob? Monster Vision. So you didn't encounter him until the later 90s then? Yeah, I had, uh, well, was it, was it that much later in the 90s? I mean, 1996 when... is when he took over Monster Vision, so yeah. Wow. I thought it was sooner than, well, maybe I did hear, because I, it seems like I knew him earlier, but I guess, I mean, if he, because I know Penn and Teller did it for a while. Uh, I, they, it was it, uh, did they have, they had somebody else on there too? See, Monster Vision was the 90s version. Well, technically Drive-In Theater was too, but Drive-In Theater started in 1987. So I remember seeing him on pay cable before he moved over to Monster Vision. Well, he was, uh, it was, uh, Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater back, uh, on, on what, uh, Showtime? The movie channel. It was the movie channel. That's right. Okay. I think maybe what happened, cause I was, all right. For some reason, I was thinking it was Monster Vision, but I know I saw him earlier in the 90s. So it's very possible, because we didn't have cable, but my cousins had cable. So uh, we used to go, whenever I would go over like my cousin's house or something, we would put on uh, cable TV and we'd watch all the movies that we weren't really supposed to be watching. I must have seen some episodes of Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater, and that's how I was like aware of him. And then, you know, years later, when he started doing Monster Vision, I was already watching Monster Vision because uh, I was watching the, the Penn and Teller year just you know gravitated right in i was like oh awesome he's here now this is uh this is great you know i already so i think it must have been i was already aware of him because of the movie channel show got to know him better when he started doing monster vision on a regular basis you see joe bob briggs real name john bloom was actually an, an investigative journalist for various magazines and newspapers especially the dallas times herald and what happened was back in the early 80s their film critic quit so he decided, what the hell, I'll take this over. But he didn't want to jeopardize his journalism career, so he invented the character of Joe Bob Briggs to review these movies. He didn't want to just review the Meryl Streep movies and the Clint Eastwood movies and the Mel Gibson movies. He wanted to review the movies nobody else reviewed. Other than a one guy in New York, nobody was reviewing these movies. These movies were so maligned, Joe Bob decided or I should say John Bloom, decided, let's champion these movies, the drive-in movies. So the character of Joe Bob Briggs was created, and he had a column, Joe Bob's Drive-In, for the longest time in the Dallas Times-Herald, which eventually became syndicated. And at the same time, both as John Bloom and as Joe Bob Briggs, he was writing articles for tons of magazines, all the way from Rolling Stone to local magazines all across the country. And he was writing true crime books. He got invited to Drive-In Theater, which the movie channel had a movie host. But it was a rotating group of movie hosts. Somebody would come in, they'd shoot four episodes, a month's worth, and then they would leave. And Joe Bob got asked to come in and never got asked to leave. 490 consecutive shows without missing a week he did on the movie channel. 490 weeks in a row, Cecil. That's crazy. 
there was always a new episode. Didn't matter if it was Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, there was always a new episode. He technically never worked for the movie channel. He was technically always the guest host for 490 weeks. (laughs) He was never technically a movie channel employee because he self-produced the show and just gave it to them. They probably have no idea, like, how much of a gold mine they landed there. Yes, they did, because once Joe Bob took over, obviously it took a little while, the ratings kept going up. And people at the movie channel couldn't understand how Bedroom Eyes 2 can get better ratings than the big budget movies they show at 7 p.m. They don't know how She's 19 and Ready can get amazing (laughs) ratings. They don't understand how these movies get great ratings. This was the brilliant thing about Joe Bob. People didn't care what movies he showed. Okay, actually, that's wrong. Let me rephrase that. They didn't tune in for the movies. They tuned in for Joe Bob, and they were going to watch whatever movie he showed. That was the goldmine that they had. Joe Bob's drive-in theater, because the movies were shown uncut, since it was, you know, pay cable, he would only, they would always show two movies, so he would only have three host segments. One before the movie, one after the movie, which would also be the introduction to the second movie, and then one after the second movie. So he'd only have 15 to 20 minutes of time within this four to six hour period, and that's what people were tuning in for. It was, it was awesome. Like, uh, and that's the, the, the truth of it is with, with a lot of things too, with, I mean, now going into stuff like YouTube is a lot of times you'll have people that are tuning in to a channel or something, not because of whatever they're talking about, but simply because of the personality. They like the person, the person's interesting. He brings a different angle to it. And that was what Joe Bob did. He just, uh, was such a charismatic, interesting person with a fantastic sense of humor and he would uh go into these movies and talk about stuff and really he was championing the movies that nobody was uh, talking about at the time now thanks to uh stuff like mystery science theater and whatnot a lot of these smaller films a lot of the the corman stuff and whatnot are being brought to a much wider audience than they were in like the 80s because usually back then you would get you know a movie would go in theaters it would it would sit in theaters for a year and then and years later, it would make it to like home video and cable and whatnot. So there was that humongous gap between. And now, you know, it's roughly three months between theatrical to home video release. So things are so much more truncated. So stuff is coming out faster. But back then, movies fall off the radar. Movies would, uh, you know, they would come out in theaters. And then by the time they were ready to come out on uh, home video and cable, like they were long since forgotten because the time between them was so distant and uh so it was cool that you had somebody that would uh bring up these things that would bring up the uh the she's 19 ready and uh all the just exploitation and horror and uh, comedy just uh teen sex comedies and stuff that uh, weren't getting the mainstream attention that uh, a lot of the other ones were joe bob was also a champion of showing you first not only would he put a movie into context you know he would give you the background and whatnot which nowadays seems like okay you know like an imdb or a trivia section do you realize how in 1987 difficult it was to come up with all of the trivia he found he would debut movies such as john woo is a better tomorrow the killer Frankenhooker, Evil Dead, movies like that made their debuts on that channel. More people probably saw A Better Tomorrow in America on Joe Bob than they did on the DVD release a decade later. 
what eventually happened was, you know, he was still doing his writing and whatnot at this time. The movie channel, and this is a story that's going to be repeated later tonight, kind of, they got new management. And new management had a new slogan for the movie channel. You're never more than 30 seconds away from a movie. If you can still do your host segments in 30 seconds and that's it, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you on the channel. They would not make an exception for him. Never more than 30 seconds away from a movie meant drive-in theater went, went kaput. That's kind of a shitty reason to dump the highest rated time slot you have, isn't it? We both know executives will often make very stupid, like, decisions. And the, this whole all or this nothing. Is, okay, this is beyond stupid. This is arbitrarily stupid. Yeah, but you see, when, when they come in, that's the thing. It's like, okay, they want to be the guys that turn this whole thing around. So if they give this guy an exception, well, then they'll have to give something else an exception. It's like, well, maybe I make an exception for the highest rated show on your channel. Also, a multiple cable Ace Award winning show. And Clearly this is working. Don't f*** with it. So once again, showing that uh, they just, they don't, you know, you have people in charge that don't understand the, you know, what they have. But that always changes. There's always some dumbbell that ruins everything up. And then what happened was, even though it was only about three months on the air because of, because of tape times, Joe Bob actually had a six month gap where he was, you know, making cameos in movies like uh, you'll, you'll hear me in the interview bring up Hollywood Boulevard 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, things like that. He was making appearances on Letterman and, and whatnot. He moved over to Monster Vision. A lot of people forget that Monster Vision existed before Joe Bob joined it. Monster Vision started as just no host. It was just old movies that Turner would throw on on a Saturday night. You know, it was stuff like The Giant Claw, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Ed Wood movies, things like that. It was just kind of the low-budget black-and-white movies that Ted Turner basically considered filler. We have a 24-hour day to fill. Nobody is really going to be watching. I mean, you know, the only people who are going to be watching these kind of movies at 3 in the morning are unemployed criminals or vampires was was basically the logic. So it started with that. And then Penn and Teller were huge fans of this. So for 13 weeks, Penn and Teller took over Monster Vision, where the gag within the show was Penn and Teller, who played themselves, were so broke because of a bad business decision on their Vegas show, they needed to become night watch guards at TNT to pay their bills, and they would watch these movies along with the audience. That was the gag. And they would show Plan 9 from Outer Space, they would show old Outer Limits episodes, which TNT had the rights to. I think Penn Gillette summed it up perfectly. I've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space nine times. Look at a movie like Passage to India. Who the hell's ever seen that more than once? <laughs> After Penn and Teller left, Joe Bob came in, and that's when most people found the show. Again, ratings were just monstrous. Yet, strangely enough, they were TNT was never proud of the show. As you'll hear in the interview, Ted Turner liked it, but the TNT programming executives were never quite happy with it, which again goes to our, why are these people executives again? It's, uh, I, now I watched it with Penn and Teller because I am an insomniac and I would, uh, and I liked 
the old monster movies and stuff. And uh, like we in the mid 90s, we had basic cable and TNT was on basic. We didn't have any of the uh, premium channels. So I was happy to watch these uh, old monster films. And they ran like a uh, weird Godzilla knockoffs like uh, Frankenstein versus King Kong, I think. But Frankenstein uh, conquers the world, I think. Frankenstein, that's what I'm thinking of. Yes, Frankenstein conquers the world, uh, which was a, a, a big favorite. I thought that was hilarious. But they uh, they ran that, and they ran a lot of, like, just oddball things. Uh, a lot of Harryhausen stuff. A lot of the black and white Harryhausens. Yeah, a lot of black and white Harryhausen. Uh, they used to run uh, the only, um, I remember, uh, was it Mutago? Uh, the Attack of the Mushroom People, which scared the crap out of me. <laughs> I, I, they used to show relatively what's now considered classics. I remember seeing the original thing from another world on the on TNT on Monster Vision. Yeah, before I think, Joe Bob. I think that might have been the first time I saw that was uh, was on Monster Vision. And so I liked it. I mean, I liked Penn and Teller and uh, I liked uh, the fact that they were running these weird ball movies that uh, I wasn't really seeing anywhere else. I think that it was it was neat. And yes, it definitely did like step up to another level when uh, Joe Bob came on because Penn Jillette, I really like Penn and I like Teller. And they did obviously have a passion for uh, a lot of these older weird movies, not to the degree that Joe Bob did. Like Joe Bob just he Joe Bob is like a born showman. He really knows how to sell something and make something that would otherwise just be completely ridiculous. I'm not going to watch a movie with lobster people or something. And I think the reason he sells it so well is he's not a horror host in the traditional sense. He's not an Elvira or a Goulardi or, or a Zachary. He, he comes across like, like, like a guy who just really loves this. He has such a natural delivery that it's just like you're talking to that local kind of weird guy that hangs out at the comic book store maybe only bays what once a week but really knows his movies yeah he he knows his stuff and that's uh that's the thing that's the beauty of it because you know you're getting like just an encyclopedia out of this guy and and he was genuinely funny too i'm sure you remember the friday the 13th marathon where he was slowly stalked by ted turner right on halloween yeah, I remember a lot of times when he would have, like, an interview, sometimes the people who he had on were, like, a star of the movie. Many times weren't really sure how to take this. They were just like, okay, like, they're sitting out in front of this trailer, and, and he's talking, you know, he rattles off the list of things in the movies, you know. Uh, the drive-in totals. Drive-in totals, you know, horse foo, kung Fu, four stars. And like the people would just kind of sit there like, all right, what? Like, like they, they almost didn't quite get the, the joke. One of the other jokes is how off the cuff it seems. Now, he admits he scripted all of this. He, he read most of this off a teleprompter, but everything was one take because he wanted it to, to seem live. Look at how many times you could hear the camera people laughing or he would be talking to someone off camera. Or I remember one time intentionally so it was made to feel like we missed something. He comes back from commercial, and he's finishing a conversation with somebody who then just leaves. It it made it feel like uh, you were a little bit, like you were part of something. Like you were watching... Uh... It made it feel like he was watching the movies with you. Yes. Yeah, it made it that much more interactive in a time when there really wasn't interactive. We're going to take a listen to the interview now, and then when we come back, we'll talk about what happened with Monster Vision. It'll be a somewhat of a familiar story. 
do you realize all these years later just how influential you actually are on the movie community with drive-in theater and monster vision do you realize how that your fan base is probably bigger now than it was when you were ever on the air if that's true then it's because it's all because of youtube but i would say when you say movie community i would say the twisted offbeat cult movie community possibly yes <laughs> but you know the more general movie community probably no but yeah i do notice uh when i do the horror conventions and 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 when i'm out in public i i used to be amazed by the people who would come and say they watch monster vision and they seem too young to watch monster vision now people come up and I, I can tell they weren't even born at the time of monster vision and so i i um I associate that with with YouTube, with, with the, uh, uh, the the shows. The shows are kind of in the public domain. I mean, I, they're like they're in a legal limbo, and so I encourage people to copy them and share them and do whatever they want to with them. Well, now I assume that means Turner probably owns the Monster Vision. What about Drive-In Theater? Because I saw on the Andy Sedaris DVD collection there were a bunch of Drive-In Theater segments on that. Yeah, I definitely own all the drive-in theaters. Uh, I have all those. The Monster Vision ones are different, and I, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure who owns them. My production company was making the show. Uh, I don't, I don't really, I don't have the contract anymore, and I don't even know. So I don't even know. Occasionally, somebody will put one up on YouTube, and they'll get a letter from a Time Warner lawyer. And if they ask me about it, I'll say, you know, just put it back up because I'm not sure Time Warner owns it, and. um and, and Time Warner doesn't seem that crazy about enforcing their rights to it. So I think they're in the public domain. I would, I would, you know, if it ever got tested, I think they're in the public domain. Have you ever thought about, since you own the drive-in theater segments, doing more of that Andy Sedaris kind of thing, putting out whatever the relevant movie or interview was on various DVD sets, or was the Sedaris thing a fluke? Well, the pro that was, uh, that was Andy asking if he could do that. I said, sure. Andy was a friend. You know, the problem is I don't own the movies, and so you would have to go back and get the movies and put the segments with the movie. Honestly, I've never really looked into it. A lot of the movies that were on drive-in theater were absolute swill. <laughs> much of it from, uh, much of it from Europe. You know, pe people remember the good stuff on, uh, on the drive-in theater. They, they don't remember the, uh, West German sex comedies and stuff that we had on there. We had a lot of stuff that was, we had a movie they kept showing over and over and over again called She's 19 and Ready. It was a West German sex comedy. Uh, it was horrible. I mean, she, first of all, she was not 19. She was 40. <laughs> and, and she hadn't been ready for years, but, but because of the title, She's 19 and Ready, you know, the thing would get ratings every time we would show it. And so, um, so it just ran over and over and over again on, uh, on drive-in theater. So we, we had some, we had some real turkeys that we would, that we would, uh, show. Cause, cause that show was not limited to horror. It was, it was every kind of exploitation film it was, you know, martial arts and, um, uh, sex farces and, um, uh, uh, anything that would run at the drive-in. Since there was such a big difference between Monster Vision and Drive-In Theater, both in what you did and the type of movies, which one in retrospect and at the time, I guess, did you prefer more? Which one did you have more freedom on? Obviously, 
Monster Vision was network television, but creatively, which one did you like better? Well, there was more creative freedom on uh, the movie channel simply because it was premium cable. So you could you could pretty much say anything. Although there were movies that they would not show. There were movies that were considered too grisly for cable. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of them for years. They wouldn't show that one. They wouldn't show Pieces, some of those Italian horror films. So there was a list of two grisly for cable movies that they wouldn't show. But as far as what I could say and what I could do on the show, they were pretty loose. I actually preferred Monster Vision more, though, because being able to come into the middle of the movie, talk at the commercial breaks, uh, was really a, a, a joy to be able to talk about what was actually going on in the movie at that actual moment. So uh, that's also what I like about DVD commentary tracks. You can actually do criticism right there in the middle of the of the, of the work you're talking about. Uh, it's really an underused thing. It should be more people should do it because it's 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 a big advantage as a way to talk about a movie. Did you ever have any issues with the as you put it the lower quality movies or in the later not even Monster Vision but the Joe Bob Saturday Night era where you were showing movies that you clearly didn't want to show like Dirty Dancing and Look Who's Talking and stuff like that? Did they ever <laughs> tell you you have to be nice to the movies? No, they never they never got on me for trashing the movie. However, we we did have disagreements about, you know, what constituted a, a movie that was appropriate on the Joe Bob show, you know. So, yeah, some of those some of those uh Hollywood Saturday night features were uh, you know, kind of far afield from what I wanted to be doing. They were trying to change the the image of the network at the time. They wanted it to be more female friendly. My show skewed heavily male. And so they were, so they thought with some, uh, some different titles, they could make it more female friendly. So that's what that was about. It's always a marketing reason. They always have a marketing reason to do things like that. No, the, the usually the, uh, the, the only times I would get in trouble was content of my monologues using terms they didn't approve of or I probably the most trouble I ever got in is I made some Kathy Bates jokes one night and and, and really got unloaded on. We, we got letters saying that I was advocating uh, uh, abuse of women because we 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 what happened is we showed Dolores Claiborne. She gets beat up by her husband, a guy in a spaghetti strap T-shirt. You know, <laughs> the ultimate bad husband. And I said, uh, and I I would just say things at each break like you know when you go on a date. Not a lot of guys that say, hey, let's go to the Kathy Bates movie. You know, it's like totally a girl thing to go to the Kathy Bates movie. And then at the next break, I would say, you know, if you're married to Kathy Bates, you're going to want to beat her up. Things like that. And people took me way too seriously. It didn't die down for a couple of weeks, really. Head of the network at the time was not a real loosey-goosey guy. He was pretty straight up about not offending certain groups. And one of those groups was feminists so it, it was considered anti-feminist did they not watch the segments before they went up or you got in trouble during the the taping you know you always get in trouble from people who have not been watching the show they're not fans of the show and they happen to see that one clip that where you make that one comment about something you know and they don't know who the guy is who i am or who what the context of the show is or whatever they're just upset by that one remark 
and so that's how that's how it always starts. That's how the controversy always starts. Somebody who's watching every week, you know, it's sort of like Donald Trump. The more you listen to him, the the more you don't take him literally. <laughs> you know, so it's it's the same thing. It was the same thing with Joe Bob. You know, the more the more times you had you had heard me talk, the less likely you were to get offended at uh, something that was a little over the top like beating up Kathy Bates. How much con- how much contact did you actually have with Ted Turner since on screen you had that whole rivalry where you made fun of Barbarella and then he stalked you on that very memorable Halloween. Have, have you, did you have any contact with Ted Turner at all? I only met Ted uh, twice while I, while I was working there and um he was very supportive. He he said he, he the, I, I met him and he said, um, he said, uh, he said, I really believe in having a movie host. He says, you always got to have a movie host. He says, the first, the first show, the first uh, station I had, he names the station that he had in North Carolina or somewhere, uh, had a movie host. That was always good ratings, movie host, you know. <laughs> so he was like, he was saying, I'm glad you're here because I was a movie host, you know. So, so he, he wasn't really watching the show or anything, but when they, when they wanted to put Barbarella on the schedule, I had always heard Jane Fonda didn't really like Barbarella. You know, it was part of her life she wanted to forget. You know, the movie had been uh, lampooned and criticized, and and so I, you know, when you when we ran these movies, we we really get down into the nitty gritty of talking about every aspect of the movie, and I thought, you know, I, I don't really want you know, the wife of the owner of the network to get pissed off at something I say about Barbarella. So I really was concerned <laughs> that that we were going to, you know, do something or say something that would be fatal to the show that night. As it turned out, we never heard anything back. So I guess they weren't watching the show that night or, or uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as important as I thought. But I really did fear that I would say something that would, that would be, you know, that would really piss Jane off. I even asked him, you know, I said, maybe we shouldn't show this. And, and they, they were like, no, no, no. They were like, totally gung ho to show it. So we showed it and, and, uh, no, nothing bad happened. And then the other time we were just making fun of Ted. You, you could always make fun of Ted. He, he had a good sense of humor. Well, that Halloween special is a very memorable moment because it was one of the few times that I remember Monster Vision really going, quote, behind the scenes, even though it was all fake and goofy, but, you know, dealing with the production staff and all that. I thought that was amazing, amazingly funny how you pulled all that off. Yeah, well, I, I, um, we had to kill a lot of time because it was, I think it was, was it, it was either four movies or five movies. We had to get to 6 a.m. We, as I recall, we had Friday the 13th, one, two, four, and five. I think that's what it was. One, two, four, and five. And so um, I wrote that narrative to, uh, you know, take take us through the whole evening. And it took a while to do that. But uh, yeah, pe- people uh, when people say talk to me about, you know, people who watched all the shows and they have favorites, they always say either that one or the night we showed the Warrior. That's another one that was. Everybody's favorite. Where I would take out the subway map and show where the warriors were on the subway and follow them on the official New York City subway map all through the movie. See, the one I remember the most is when you showed the Deliberate Stranger, the entire four-hour miniseries. You and I think it was Rusty made that that like prison casserole or something and ate it. 
<laughs> yeah, we uh, yeah we always had disastrous cooking segments. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. That was that was another one that went on forever. Yeah, you're right. Well, now obviously Monster Vision became Joe Bob's Saturday Night and was eventually canceled. And I know you made a pilot for country music television a few years after that that didn't go anywhere. Is this something you want to come back to? You clearly like it. I'm sure you were disappointed when Joe Bob's Saturday Night went away, even if maybe the working conditions were not the best in that last year. Is there any chance of Joe Bob Briggs coming back in some form and doing that kind of thing? Maybe public domain movies or, or like, you know, on the Grindhouse channel where they have the rights to a bunch of drive-in yeah. style movies or something? You know, at least once a year, somebody comes to me and says, do you want to do a show for us? And I always say yes. And it never, you know, it never materializes for one reason or another. The thing about TV is, you know, it's always in flux and people are always looking for programming that fits exactly into their, you know, financial goals for that year. Hosting of any kind, not just mine, is an additional cost. You have to buy the movie and then you have to pay for all the stuff around the movie. So you have to get through the normal executive resistance to paying extra when he's already bought the movie. You know, and so there's that fact. There's the fact that hosting in general has sort of been out of favor since that period when there were a lot of movie hosts. You know, it's not it's kind of not a thing anymore. It is a thing, as you point out, with the public domain guys who um, are mostly on um, local access channels. Several of them have done quite well with it. The kind of show I did, which was very uh, production intensive, you know, we had a lot, we shot a whole lot of minutes. It, it would, it would take us a, a special um, kind of uh, executive to, uh, to approve that. There's actually a guy right now that wants to talk about it. <laughs> so when I say price is an issue, it's not my price. It's the price of, of producing the shows, you know, cause I'm cheap. There is a, a cable channel right now that's that's talking to me that's like says they're interested in doing it, you know, and and I'm always happy to help plan it and uh, and whatever and would would be would be uh, you know thrilled to be back doing that again. You know, I had a big advantage at TNT, which is that well, it was a, it was an advantage and disadvantage. The disadvantage was you didn't know what time the show came on. It, some some weeks it came on at ten o'clock. Some weeks at 9.30, some weeks at 11.30, depend on what the uh, previous programming was. A lot of times we followed basketball. But the good thing was they didn't care how long we went on. As long as we were done by 6 a.m., <laughs> they, were, they were fine with it. They would just, if we finished at 4.30, they would fill in with cartoons or whatever till 6 when the programming day started. So we didn't have any time limitations. We didn't have to say this segment's 30 seconds, and this one's 45, and this one's three minutes or whatever. We just do whatever we wanted. That doesn't exist anymore on television. <laughs> so uh, you couldn't reproduce it exactly, you know, but you, but you could uh, you could do a version of it. You could do a new version of it. Now, on another slightly associated note, you've been in a lot of movies. You said you're really cheap. How did you get involved with, like, Hollywood Boulevard 2, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, those kind of things? Which I know were really cameos, but they're very memorable cameos. Well, it's a, it's a different story in every case. One of my earliest friends in the 
exploitation world was Roger Corman. And so when he was doing Hollywood Boulevard 2, you know, the whole the whole Hollywood Boulevard franchise is send-ups of the exploitation movie world. And so he asked me to do it, you know, just to have have me in the picture because I was one of the exploitation movie guys. That was uh that was fun. Then um uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I was down in um Austin to interview Dennis Hopper for Rolling Stone magazine. Toby Hooper, the director, knew that I was a fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I'd written a lot about it and he said, "Why don't you get with Kit Carson the screenwriter and you guys write a scene for you?" And so that's how that happened. In in every case it was a a, a little bit of a of a of a lark because I never really set out to be uh, an actor. The only re- the only time I was really seeking acting roles was between the movie channel and TNT. A total period of about six months. And it was on screen. It was only like three months. Uh, I did go for some auditions and I got the part in um, Casino and uh, Face Off and uh, Married with Children. All all of that was like in a period of I don't know a year or so. Well, it was fun. it's funny that you bring up Casino. It, it was an A movie with big movie stars in it, and there's Joe Bob. And technically, your role, your character is the one that kicks off all the bad things that happen to De Niro throughout the rest of the film, too. Without my character, the movie doesn't exist. Exactly. The whole plot hinges on my character. It really does. That's right. The guy who plays uh, the guy who plays my uncle, L. Q. Jones, was in the Wild Bunch. He was the biggest celebrity on the set. I mean, De Niro wanted to meet him. Scorsese wanted to meet him. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, he was such a legend that they were waiting for the day when he would show up because <laughs> he was such a legendary actor. Um, you would expect him to be a little intimidating, but they they were uh, they were really cordial and friendly. De Niro was a little aloof, but the rest of them were. But he, even he loosened up after a point, so. Now, you mentioned you worked for Rolling Stone. A lot of people probably don't realize that that you write a lot, sometimes as Joe Bob Briggs, sometimes as John Bloom. But did you ever find the whole Joe Bob Briggs-John Bloom thing a little disconcerting, that, that they're two very different worlds that those two people exist in? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I try to keep them separate. It's it's more disconcerting on the other side when I'm when I'm going out as John Bloom and trying to be taken seriously. They Google me and then they say you're like, is are, what are you are you doing a is this a comedy book? What is this? What are you doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? I get I get uh, uh, cross examined when I'm trying to be have on my serious uh, journalist face and. Um, and I say, well, you know, I, I I do both, and most people can accept it once it's once it's explained. But but when I'm when I'm dealing with um, people who already don't want to talk to you, you know, they're afraid of what you're going to write, and then they they Google me and say, like, oh, this guy does he does like lowbrow comedy on TV. It's like, you know, what, what what's this going to be? This is this is bad news, and so it it like kind of hurts me. It, it hurts my ability to get them to. Uh, Talk to me and take me seriously. As far as the Joe Bob fans being aware of the um, uh, serious journalism side, you know, they, they, they just take that in stride. There's no big deal about that. So <laughs> I have to tell them, though, you know, I was doing a book talk. And um, if I do a book talk, you know, I have a book out now 
called eccentric orbits. That's about a, it's about satellites. If I do a book talk anywhere, a certain percentage of the audience will be Joe Bob fans, and I try to tell them in advance there will be no jokes here. Although there might be, <laughs> there might be a few. You know, it's not going to be it's not going to be a laugh a minute. You know, it's, we're not going to talk about zombies. You know, there's not going to be anything like that. So that so they won't be disappointed. You know, I hate to disappoint people. And I think sometimes the uh, the people who show up who who are uh, you know the more straight laced people who show up for that are a bit amused by some of the uh, people who come from the other side who are in costume and everything. Not that people can't appreciate both. It's just that you know you, usually if you're a if you're a fanatic you're you're one or the other. So <laughs> Look, I've I've read your books as Joe Bob the Joe Bob books. And I used to read your column in Funny Times. And then I've also read a lot of the John Bloom stuff. Stylistically, you can kind of tell if you know that they're both written by the same guy. But I, I think for some people going, because I, I remember showing a, a TV trailer for that like Murder in the Heartland TV movie that was based on, on your true crime book. And people are like, Joe Bob wrote that? And then I have to correct them, no, John Bloom wrote that book. Yeah, kill, killing in a small town. You're talking about killing yes. in a small town. Yeah, that, right? that's the one. Yeah, yeah. I actually that was my first book, and I actually wrote it prior to inventing Joe Bob Briggs. So that's what I was doing. That, that's pretty much where my career was. That's what I was doing. I'm still like, after all these years, actually that book, uh, Evidence of Love, is the name of the book. The movie was Killing in a Small Town, but the book Evidence of Love. Was just uh, released for the first time on as an ebook just last month because, and the reason is, it's been out of print for years. But the reason is, for true crime fans, true hardcore true crime book readers, it always makes the top ten list, which was which is gratifying. But it's sort of like being the you know the the movie that comes out and bombs, and then twenty years later becomes a hit on on uh, home video. You know, same sort of thing. That's what happened with Evidence of Love. It was it was not a huge success when it first came out in hardcover. Fairly successful as a cheesy paperback, as a, a cheesy mass trade paperback for a short period of time. And then it went into hibernation. And then once again, the Internet brought it back. You know, people were like trading top ten lists. And it would always get on the top ten true crime list. So... It's actually one of the things that when I look at it today, I don't want to rewrite it. Almost everything that I write, I want to rewrite it and redo it. You know, I'm not satisfied with it. But it, actually, that book, uh, I feel like it's complete and it's what it should be. Well, no. Speaking of that, then though, you have the you have this you have the the, the John Bloom persona out there. What what was it happened at the Daily Show? Because I remember you started in the Craig Kilborn era of The Daily Show, and I remember they made you go as John Bloom. I, I read something that they wouldn't let you be Joe right. Bob Briggs on that. And then you were on the John Stewart version for a little while. Right. I remember when John Stewart had his final episode, they had all these old people back. I was expecting, Joe Bob's going to show up, and he didn't. I'm like, oh, that tells me something. Well, no, I don't I don't have any grievances against The, the Daily Show. But uh, what happened is I had done a pilot called God Stuff. That was a 30-minute pilot. I, I have these friends in um, Dallas who monitor televangelists, make tapes of everything that televangelists say on TV 
both the local ones and the national ones, and they're, they're monitoring them for the purpose of consumer fraud. And so they have all these tapes, thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of tapes. Well, my, a friend of mine said, you got to look at our blooper reel. You know, you know, we save our favorite stuff. And so he showed me all this great stuff from the religious TV. And based on, I said, how much of this stuff do you have? And he says, oh, unlimited. So I said, okay. So I did this pilot thinking I could do it like a talk soup style pilot, make it all religious TV. Executive producers of The Daily Show, which didn't exist at that time, they were just starting to form it, and they didn't have a host. They didn't have anything. They saw the tape. And they said, uh, you want to be part of this? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, you can't be Joe Bob because I don't believe in the, the executive producer had formerly been at the Letterman show. I don't let people come on TV uh, pseudonym. And I argued a little bit. I said, I said, I know Bob, Bobcat Goldthwait has been on Letterman. She said, yeah. And I said, his name is not Bobcat. <laughs> and she says, well, that's different. It's professional name. I said, it's my professional name too, you know? And so, but she still, she wouldn't give in on it. She was very, I don't know, adamant about it. So I did it as John Bloom. I think it would have been better if I'd done it as Joe Bob. You know, so I, I did those for, I, th I think it was three seasons. I'm not sure. She was always, they were always like, where do these tapes come from? I said, the Trinity Foundation in Dallas, Texas. And I said, Trinity. That is, so it's a religious thing? And I said, well, it's. Yeah, it's religious, but I think they took the name from the Trinity bomb, you know, the atomic bomb in New Mexico. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, they were like always disturbed a little bit <laughs> that it came from a Christian organization. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. And they also would choose weird, in my opinion, they would choose weird clips. They didn't choose the funniest clips. Uh, they wanted clips that just, they, they didn't want clips that had actual religious content in them, which sometimes were the funniest uh, clips. They just wanted the clips where the guy was being insane, you know, which were also funny and which I believe we should have used. But there were a lot more with, that we could have done with it. So I guess after 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 three seasons, they were they were done with it, although they, they continue to do ser uh, uh, similar things, just not in that same format. Were you asked to come back for John's final episode? Because a lot of the old correspondents did. No, they. I, I was never in touch with them after that. I never heard. I never heard back from them. I. I don't know. I was. I was on the show, but I was never of the show. You know. You know what I mean. It, it was. And and the show was very segmented. It wasn't an ensemble so much as you know each guy did his own thing. Uh, it It wasn't like Saturday Night Live where everybody knows each other. I remember not really enjoying a whole lot of the Kilborn stuff. John Stewart was a much better host. I yeah, I I have to agree with that. Yeah, but you also have to remember that that Craig Kilborn didn't have a studio audience. They discovered one of the firm principles of doing comedy is that you got to have an audience. They wanted to do it without an audience, and there's something about that. There's something about that fake live feel that. I don't know what it is now, but it originally it was very, very small. I mean, it might have been, it might have been the first audiences they used might have been 30 people because it's actually hard to get studio audiences in New York. Uh, it's hard to get people to come in, you know, even with free tickets for a show they haven't heard of. You know, today it would be, you know, I'm sure, the, I'm sure it's competitive today to get tickets for the Daily Show, but for the shows you haven't heard of, which was, which was true in the days of Craig Kilborn, 
you know, it's hard to get people to come off the street and go see the show. You want the people screened for, uh, are they going to like the show? Are they going to respond? Are they, are they just going to sit there like zombies? And so that's a real art form, getting an audience for a show like that. So what do you think the legacy of Joe Bob Briggs is going to be? Because obviously, like, uh, Fright Rags just recently put out the Monster Vision T-shirts and that poster. I have one hanging on my wall right now. Those sold out almost instantly. What do you think Joe Bob's legacy is with YouTube, with, you know, hopefully you coming back to TV or even an Internet channel or whatnot? Where does Joe Bob go from here? Well, I don't know what the legacy will be, but what I would like it to be is that I legitimized a whole area of film that was previously ghetto, considered ghetto, and made it okay for people to celebrate these films, love these films, talk about these films, treat these films as seriously as they treat, you know, foreign films and art films and Hollywood films. You know, say, hey, we need to preserve this stuff just like we need to preserve Gone with the Wind. So I hope that's the effect of it. Because when I started, there was nobody doing this. There was me. There was a guy named Bill Landis in uh, New York, Sleazoid Express, fanzine. There was John Waters, and that was about it. You know, as far as people who who truly knew what they were talking about, who celebrated the exploitation film. Over the years, and especially with the advent of the Internet, that's changed. Uh, frequently, when I would review a film in the early 80s, I was the only person to review the film. It was the only review. It was ignored by the mainstream media. Today, if you put out any exploitation film, there's 50 reviews on the Internet the next day. So I consider that to be the accomplishment, and I hope that that legacy is the, is the hunger for genre entertainment. You know, that's, that's the fancy word that the industry gives it, uh, genre films. Uh, I always just call them exploitation films. It's the people's film. I mean, obviously the horror host existed, has existed since Vampira and became super popular with Elvira. Joe Bob was not like a goofy vampire. He was not a ghoul. He was just a good old boy who really loved movies. And I think that, that spoke to people more than an Elvira could. Yeah, it makes total sense. And the, the, uh, the, uh, sort of, uh, comic book approach to the horror films, late night horror films, sort of forced on TV by the fact that the libraries that were available to them were very small, and the quality of those libraries was very weak. <laughs> and so, and so they were doing the best they could with what they had. The RKO Films Library was the first group of films that were shown widely on TV, and that's what uh, John Zachary used, and that's what uh, Goulardi used in Cleveland, and that's what various hosts used around the country. And even though there are some very memorable films in that library, like Cat People and, and some others. King Kong. They're also some of the worst films, uh, ever made in that library. You know, there was, there was, uh, there were, you know, five or six films that were either produced, directed, or supervised by Val Luke, and those are pretty good. And then the rest of it is really hit and miss. And so they did all the cartoon stuff as hosts, you know, because that was really the only way to deal with those movies. If you, if you watch the Monster Vision episodes, we get very cartoony when the movie's bad. You know, we, we go far afield from the movie when the movie's bad. And so, so we, we weren't that different. The idea of really getting down into the nitty gritty of how the film was made, why it was made, who's in it, 
why this person is important, all that stuff that you normally do, that a critic would normally do about a more serious film. That's what I hope is the legacy of the show. There have always been the two kinds of hosting, you know, the kind I do and then the, you know, what uh, Rhonda Shear and uh, Elvira do, which is more, they do comedy that's around the film, where I try to always make my material directly out of the film. Well, I think one thing, I don't know if you realize this or not, is part of your legacy is how rare Joe Bob original merchandise is. If you look on eBay for old <laughs> We Are the Weird or drive-in newsletters or anything like that, or, or the old sleaziest movies in the history of the world tapes, you're going to be paying out yep. three, four digits for those things. Do you realize just how rare really? your old merch is? No, if I knew that, I wouldn't have given it all away. The sleaziest movies in the history of the world... I, I can imagine that they didn't make that many of those because that was a company called Strand Video based in England. Their main business, they made the plastic boxes that the, that the videos come in. And they wanted to expand and they wanted to be distributors. So they came over to L.A. and they set up a distribution company. They wanted to buy libraries of films and somehow they got the ear of um, Jimmy Maslon at Hollywood book and poster, and he'd spent most of his, he'd spent years trying to put together all the libraries of Herschel Gordon Lewis and uh, some other exploitation filmmakers, bought the rights from Jimmy to all those films, not that the rights were very secure. <laughs> Jimmy said he had the rights, you know, you didn't know whether he did or not. But anyway, uh, he, he had more, more claim to him than anybody else. That's what we put out as I mean, there, there were there were maybe 20 titles in the series, might, might be more than that, maybe 24. Uh, most of them were Herschel Gordon-Lewis, and and I hope it did a lot to you know help the the growing Herschel Gordon-Lewis revival of the middle 80s. The, the company became bored with they only had me doing that series and Thomas the Tank Engine. Those, those were the two big Strand video series, and then Strand went back to they they got I guess they got beat up in the marketplace. They didn't. They didn't enjoy their experience in the United States, and they, they closed up shop and went back to England. Now, I don't know what happened to all the inventory at the time they went back to England, but whatever existed, that was all that was ever going to exist. <laughs> there were going to be no second printings of any of that stuff. So that's why it's so rare. Well, how about the We Are the Weird drive-in newsletters? Because I've got a whole bunch of those, and I looked on eBay, and those can go for 15 to $20 per newsletter. Really? Well, that was... I used to mail out quite a few of those. I mean, it was uh, it was every two weeks or several years. Those were, you know, I, I don't remember what the print run was on them, but it, it was it was substantial enough that they shouldn't be that rare. That that indicates to me that people were keeping them, you know, holding them in a three ring binder somewhere or something. But yeah, they were actually we 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 changed names. It was We Are the Weird, and then it became the Joe Bob Report. But it's the same uh, same fanzine newsletter that went out for years. Because I, I remember I nearly plotched when I saw, maybe about a year ago, an original Monster Vision shirt, the ones you guys used to give away for the caption contest and that, went for almost $900 yeah. on eBay. Oh, my God. It's just like, <laughs> I'm not aware of any of this. Yeah, the, the, the old the old merch is worth a lot, man. Well, I'm a, I'm amazed. I was I was uh, I was surprised when Fright Rags, which is a very good company, 
came to me and said they wanted to do those shirts, and then they did those. They got an artist that did some brilliant artwork for those shirts, and they did the poster, and they've gone back to press on the on the shirts and the poster. So yeah, there's a there's a Joe Bob uh, Monster Vision fan base out there. And then and then of course you've got your DVD commentaries as well. That started uh, when um, the uh, distributor of I Spit on Your Grave, the first DVD release of I Spit on Your Grave was about to come out, and uh, the director, Mayor Zarki, called me up, and he said, uh, are you that guy that did the good review of I Spit on Your Grave? And I said, yeah. And he says, would you like to do the commentary track for the DVD? I said, well, sure, I've never done one, but I, you know, because you're the only guy that ever wrote a positive review of I Spit on Your Grave. <laughs> and I said, okay, I get it. That's how I was introduced to the world of the commentary track on DVDs, which I still feel like is underutilized. Of course, DVDs are not long for this world, but but the commentary track is this wonderful tool for doing film criticism that nobody really uses properly. Everybody just like sort of talks off the cuff on the commentary track, especially the directors and actors. After I did the first the first one, um, I got a lot of email from people saying, hey, I really liked your commentary track, but you had too many silent silent parts on there. We kept waiting for you to come back and talk again. Well, I was silent because I thought, this is too important a scene. Somebody needs to watch this. You know, you need to watch this, and then I'll start talking again. I said, no, 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 we've already watched the film. <laughs> you should talk more. <laughs> and, so, and so on everyone after that, I did wall-to-wall talking <laughs> and i tell people watch the film without me talking and then i'm going to talk over the film and you know choose one or the other and people like that a lot better it really challenges you because like in some people like in some movies like um hell's angels 69 for example the the hell's angels are riding their motorcycles forever across endless vistas in the west <laughs> you know it's just music but it's, you know, two minutes, they're like on the road with just motorcycle shots. So to talk for the two minutes. So I, so during those sequences, I give the whole history of the motorcycle, of, of, of the biker movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it challenges your ability to keep talking. I enjoyed doing all those. And uh, people always ask me, are you going to do more of those? And I always say, well, I, I don't think anybody's doing those anymore. I mean, occasionally I'll be asked to do an interview for a DVD extra, you know, talk about a film on camera, but rarely does anybody say, we want you to do a full commentary track. They really they really would prefer to have the director talking off the top of his head than to have, than to have a commentary track. You know, I like doing those. They're hard work, but I think they, they uh, I think more people should do it. More critics should do them. If you're listening to it, you can check your perception against, of the actual movie against what the critic is saying. You can actually fact check the critic. So I, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to have. Well, I can tell you right now, you're the reason I own a lot of those ones with the Joe Bob commentary. I don't think I ever would have bought Hell's Angel 69 or Run Angel Run if it wasn't for your commentary track. I don't <laughs> think I'd actually want to own those. Maybe not own them, but Run Angel Run, I think is a pretty good movie. Hell's Angel 69, I mean, they were expecting the hell, the actual Hell's Angels to act. I mean, who who does that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know who thought that movie was a good idea. 
Well, but I mean, this also, is the same era. Be... We're in the same era now where, you know, the I Spit on Your Grave DVD with your commentary is in Walmart in the $5 bin now. When that movie came <laughs> out, is. could you have ever conceived that I Spit on Your Grave would be a Walmart movie? Oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, no. I, I you know, there were there were people that hated that movie, despised that movie, who thought you were mentally ill if you could watch that movie. No, that is amazing. I, I um, saw Fulci's Zombie last Halloween at Walmart for $5. Full eyeball scene, shark attack, everything. And I bet you it sold out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Times have really changed, man. We, we, yeah. We're dinosaurs. Yeah. We're on our way out. Yeah, well, but I, I think there will always be a market for the exploitation film. It's just that it might be in a different format. It might be for a different audience. The genres of exploitation are going to, you know, they change from time to time. I mean, the, the evergreen is horror. Horror will always be with it. The sh- subgenres of horror are definitely going to change and, and go away and come back. And who thought that doll movies would come back? <laughs> you know, it's like haunted doll movies. Charles Band <laughs> made a living on it. Like 10, like 10 in the last two years. No, I mean good ones. Not, not, not the old Charlie Band ones. Paranormal movies based on dolls, uh, you know, in the past, past five years. I mean, there's, there's been uh, an enormous number of them. The, you know, the problem for the horror director is to find something that you haven't seen. But it, the, the problem is cliche on a horror film. I mean, you have to, you have to really have, um, that's why I think they're, they're, they're probably harder to write than any other kind of film. Everyone has seen every cliche. Everyone has seen every scare tactic. To write a truly original horror film, that's a true achievement. The only thing I would like to plug, I write this weekly column in uh, for Taki's magazine, T-A-K-I apostrophe S, out of London, called Joe Bob's America. It's been really, really interesting. I've read them all so far. <laughs> on, on some weeks. I don't know if you read the one where I got, I, I had over 3,000 comments, most of them from the alt-right, where I got attacked by the alt-right. Some, the interesting thing about this column is some weeks I get attacked by the right and some weeks I get attacked by the left. And there's not a week that goes by that I don't get at least one email saying, I used to like you, Joe Bob Leon. Monster Vision, but uh, remove me from your mailing list. <laughs> wow, babies. Um, uh, <laughs> and especially with the Trump stuff, because just just to say, just to say, people, can you wait till January twenty first? <laughs> you know, let's see what he does. Just to say something like that, you know, that that's a hundred negative negative uh, uh, negative comments. You know, so that column has been fun and. Um, and uh Taki Mag itself is an interesting place because they have total editorial freedom and they have a lot of off the wall writers that you wouldn't find anywhere else. They do skew to the right, which I think is partly why I've been attacked so much because I uh, you know, on Taki Mag I'm kind of a liberal and <laughs> whereas if I was in a more mainstream place I would be a conservative, but I've always sort of run down the that run, run down the middle of political expectations anyway. Uh, anyway, it's a place where I'm practicing. It's hard to do satire in a satirical age, you know, in, a, in, a, in an age where the stuff on Twitter is so weird, it's like hard to satirize. But anyway, I just wanted to say 
say that about Taki Mag because it's a it's an interesting place and a, and kind of an exciting place because they're giving a voice to people that otherwise wouldn't have a voice. Joe Bob is very humble about this whole thing. Obviously, he he tries to to balance the fact that most people know him from Monster Vision. And it's kind of funny that more people know him from Monster Vision than anything else. I mean, he's won numerous journalism awards, yet he's always going to be known as Joe Bob Briggs. He, he's in the movie Casino with, with De Niro, but more people know him from Monster Vision. And it's kind of funny that on Monster Vision, even more so than Drive-In Theater, remember what I said about Drive-In Theater, how people tuned in for Joe Bob, not for the movie? That was even more so on Monster Vision, because Monster Vision was basic cable. You had a different tier of movie, drive-in type movies on the movie channel. On TNT, you had more mainstream stuff in general. You had Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Streets, Child's Play movies, things like that. But they were all edited to hell for broadcast television. You really couldn't enjoy the movies. When you watch them, you literally watch these for Joe Bob. That's true. That was the, the, the only downside was that, uh, he would come in and he would talk about nudity and blood and violence and this, that, and the other thing. And then the movie would just be edited to hell and back. And there were a bunch of them by that point when he was on, there were a lot of them that I had seen on VHS and whatnot. And, uh, I was, I would watch them again because Joe Bob was so entertaining. And again, I was really watching it more for him the movie itself and it's like oh they cut out that part oh they cut out this you know so that was always frustrating really annoying and it always struck me as odd they're running these movies at like two in the morning why are you editing them so that children can't see them well what i liked about that whole editing thing was that he put it on the show that his battles with the high sheriffs, that's what he called the censors, he constantly bitched about that on the show. Even when he would do the breast count, he's like, four breasts that you won't see in this version that have been scissored out. I liked the fact that TNT actually let him bitch about what they're doing on the show and make it part of the gag. That was fun as hell. Well, they probably, I have a feeling that in general, there were probably a bunch of the executives there that were fairly hands-off, like, they knew about the show and they would put restrictions on the show, but they weren't really aware of the content in the show. Like until somebody probably brought it to their attention. Hey, you know, he's mocking you guys. What? Yeah. yeah. He, as he talked about in the interview, which I thought was a fantastic thing. When they showed Dolores Claiborne, you know, she, Kathy Bates gets beat up in that movie. He got, he almost got fired over the comment. Well, if you were married to Kathy Bates, you'd beat her too. <laughs> That's a funny joke. It's a very insensitive joke, but it's funny. You know what? It's comedy. It, it's just, it's absurd because you, you don't understand the, the humor in that. It's, it's a joke. And that always gets me when you have somebody that's like, well, it's promoting violence again. No, joke. No one is going to hear that joke and go out and punch a woman. Kathy Bates specifically. And to be perfectly honest, after seeing Misery, I would not mess with Kathy Bates. So what happened was, just like happened at the movie channel, TNT got new executives, and they got a new mandate. And now, instead of you're never more than 30 seconds away from a movie, somebody decided, by the early 2000s, Joe Bob's show, which skewed almost completely male. Some of his biggest fans were literally in prison 
what happened was they they wanted TNT to become more of a female-friendly network. So what a lot of people forget is that the last season of Monster Vision wasn't even Monster Vision. It was Joe Bob's Saturday Night. They got rid of the trailer, everything was lit better, and he was having to show female-friendly movies. All of a sudden in that last season of Joe Bob's Saturday Night, he's showing Back to the Future, Adventures in Babysitting, Dirty Dancing, Look Who's Talking. Do you see how the core audience sort of abandoned him at the end? Is it a, is it a surprise the ratings took a sharp drop in that final season? No, and then they probably blamed him for it. Yeah, the, the ratings can't justify keeping you on the air. Yeah, because you're making me show Dirty Dancing! No one is staying up at 3 in the morning to watch Dirty Dancing. I was, just because of Joe Bob. I, I'm saying, like, like I would rather... St- like, if, if I, I would... St- at that point, I would just record it on VHS and then watch the Joe Bob segments and fast forward through the movie. Like, what's what's the point of watching something like that? It doesn't like he, it's now no longer bringing anything fun. It's now it's just annoying. And so he was let go from TNT. He he moved on to the Daily Show of all. Again, people forget back when Craig Kilborn started that Joe Bob was in the Craig Kilborn seasons. And a little bit into the John Stewart seasons. A lot of people forget, Joe Bob was a Daily Show correspondent, for God's sake. And then his writing started to take off. He had a TV movie made out of one of his true crime books. And he became an institution and didn't even realize it. So he just kind of moved on. And the rest of us were watching all of the old tapes on the bootleg circuit. I would argue right now, Joe Bob is more popular now probably than he ever was when he was actually on the air. Thanks to the wonders of the internet, I would agree because, uh, there is, uh, there's a generation of people that were watching him and then there were people that discovered him after the fact. And now there are people that are discovering him, uh, because a lot of, uh, videos are put up on the torrent sites. There's a lot of videos that are, uh, are circulating on YouTube. I mean, they get taken down, but I mean, they're still out there and you get people that are stumbling upon them and, uh, are... well, if, if, if I can plug this real quick, if you go to my YouTube channel, rare video trader i've got a ton of joe bob stuff up there and i'm I'm adding more as i'm taking all of my collection and slowly converting it so if you want joe bob go to youtube and look up rare video trader wow that's what my own dick tastes like (laughs) it is out there and uh and it's nice that it's out there because uh, that is one of the good things about the internet is that there are a lot of older things that uh, were lost and are starting to you know pop up because of things like YouTube. As he said in the interview, he'll have fans come up to him at these horror conventions and be like, "Oh, I love your stuff," and he's like, "You're like 16. You were you you weren't even alive when I was making these." So th- that's the first time it dawned on him. How much of an internet presence he might have without, I mean, you know, he still does JoeBobBriggs.com and he has a Twitter account and a Facebook. He doesn't do all that much online and yet the newer generation has discovered him. And that's what I think is so beautiful because of the fact that he was such a champion. The movies that, you know, traditionally were not cared about. I mean, I, I know for a fact he showed me movies that I would have never watched on my own, like a movie like The Banker. I would have never watched a movie like The Banker with Robert Forster. It's a fantastic exploitation film about a crazy banker that kills hookers with a crossbow. But with a title like The Banker, without Joe Bob's endorsement, would you ever watch that? No. But it's a great exploitation movie. 
Yeah, it's it's that's the thing. I, I think a lot of the the old exploitation films they had such very bare bones titles that didn't really lead you to think of of anything. Uh, the banker. Yeah, oh God, why am I going to watch the banker? And then you see, oh my God, this is awesome. From Monster Vision, The Kiss. Okay, you, you know, a movie like The Kiss. Okay, it sounds like a Bette Midler film. No, it's this weird voodoo priestess and people being killed with scissors and there's snakes coming out of vaginas and it's like, I would have never watched a movie called The Kiss if it wasn't on Monster Vision. I actually, the reason I saw The Kiss was because I was majorly infatuated with Meredith Salinger and... Uh, I knew you were going to say that. Oh my God, do I look... Uh, with her, uh, between The Kiss and uh, Dream a Little Dream, I just, oh, I loved her. My point, point stands, stand, though. I am an exception to the rule. Most people probably, the, the reason I saw The Kiss was because I had my, my older sister rent it for me from the video store because it had Meredith Salinger in it. I saw it on Monster Vision, and I would have never watched it if Joe Bob hadn't said, this is not that good of a movie, but it's fun. <laughs> So to me, Joe Bob is kind of like a personal hero of mine. When I did my my show on Channel 32 all those years ago, it came from Beyond Midnight. I didn't pattern myself after Joe Bob, but I wanted that kind of that kind of free flowing that kind of free flowing style that Joe Bob had. I don't think I succeeded at that, but that was my goal. Joe Bob inspired me. This interview I got with him. I've been pestering his assistant for six years to get this interview, Cecil. It was always, it, it was not Joe Bob was unwilling to do it. It was always schedules didn't, didn't work together. And I finally were able to find a time where both of our schedules were open. So this was kind of a holy grail interview for me, Cecil. Yeah. I'm, I'm really bummed that, uh, that I wasn't there. I would have uh... learned how to tell time. Ah, uh, shut up. I got a lot going on right now. Maybe a year or so ago, I had somebody on uh, YouTube who uh, wrote to me and said that, uh, you know, how they were, they loved my show, that I was, they were a big fan. And they, they said that, uh, they called me Joe Bob 2.0. And I took that as like the highest possible compliment because, uh, I do champion a lot of underdog movies. I talk. You're also about, wrong about a lot of them. Oh, uh, will you shut up? I talk about a lot of movies that people don't talk about. I review a lot of movies that no one's going to see. I talk about a lot of stuff and I get a lot of people that thank me because much like Joe Bob, I, you know, I would have never heard of this movie. I didn't know there was such a thing and this is great. I would probably be, uh, bigger if i talked more about you know if I, if I did nothing but talk about the mainstream movies but that's not where my heart is my heart is always with the underdogs and i do occasionally venture into the bigger movies and stuff when i uh, but always end up going back to the smaller films the films that uh, maybe the studio screwed up on in some way shape or form or they just uh, botched it, uh, the marketing on it or it's a really good low budget film that uh, people should watch and they would genuinely enjoy so the fact that somebody would refer to me and Joe Bob kind of in the same sentence and say that I am a spiritual successor even though Joe Bob is still going strong like I mean it's not like he stopped and, and somebody else is taking the mantle it's just that he's still going strong and i'm kind of doing my own thing that was inspired by him as well as a bunch of you know as well as mr science theater and a bunch of other uh things so i think that uh he's somebody who is just a very interesting charismatic great
great guy. I've had tiny bits of correspondence with him uh, years ago on Facebook, or at least with, you know, whoever was handling his Facebook account. And uh, I just always really liked him and uh, would have liked to have been able to chat with him, but it didn't line up. And maybe maybe sometime in the future, I will uh, I'll be able to see him at a con or something. And see, my final thoughts would be, I grew up watching Drive-In Theater. I grew up watching Monster Vision. I grew up reading his stuff. Like I said, as John Bloom, I read some of his stuff in Rolling Stone and all that. But at the same time, the Joe Bob character would write a lot of satirical stuff. There's an old magazine that doesn't exist anymore called Funny Times. And he had a column in that where he would just look at pop culture and America in general, they were hilarious. And he's kind of doing the same thing now at TakiMag.com, although a lot of the stuff is him attacking Donald Trump, but it's in that same satirical Joe Bob kind of way. And if you've ever, you've ever read his writing, he has a sense of humor that is so unique. For instance, in his original print review in the Dallas Times-Herald, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, I, I remember this, the image that these words put in my head. Everyone in Bartertown dresses like Ike and Tina going to a settlement meeting. <laughs> that is amazingly unique, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he knows how to paint a picture with words. And that's also what a very offensive to modern feminism audiences today, isn't it? Oh, uh, well, they, I don't they, care. It was funny. Yeah. They, they need, again, need to understand humor. On that note, I want to thank Joe Bob for finally catching up with me, having our schedules finally link up. So I want to thank him for that. He was fantastic when we were talking. We sat and talked for another half hour or so after the interview. Guys, go check him out. Check out. He, he does lots of horror conventions. He does lots of screenings like Alamo Draft House and stuff like that where he'll, he'll, um, intro a film. And he is a really cool guy. And check out whatever you can find on YouTube or any of the sites to watch the old Monster Visions. You, you can get his books on Amazon super cheap, both as John Bloom and as Joe Bob Briggs. I highly recommend Joe Bob Goes to the Drive-In and Joe Bob Goes Back to the Drive-In. Those are two fantastic books of 70s and 80s movie reviews, some of which of those movies still don't have DVD releases, I'll add. Cecil can be found where? Found at uh, escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, as well as goodbadflicks on Twitter, Facebook, and, uh, YouTube. oh yeah, hey, YouTube, my, my primary source of income. Yes, go to YouTube. And yet you forgot it. I did not. Uh, it's, it's been a long day. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. <laughs>
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.